Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org. Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We're going to talk about dog training, and we've had experience in dog trainers, haven't we? Yes, a, a few too many, if you ask me. That's right. In the last several years, where we had three different dog trainers trying to give us some tips on, on training one of our dogs. and um, This dog's pretty rambunctious, likes to pull on the leash a lot, would like to chase cars if she could. Okay. So uh, it's reasonable to ask for help. And they all have different methods, right? And I mean, widely different. One believed the dogs shouldn't be on the same level with us, with the humans, so didn't believe the dog should be sleeping in our bed or, on, or lying on the couch with us. That's right. And another suggested we fill a can with pennies and use that whenever the dog didn't do something we wanted her to do. That's right. And even another suggested medication like Prozac. Remember that one? I know. I'm not giving up my Prozac. <laughs> so do you ever wonder what the best methods of dog training are? I mean, personally, I do find this whole field confusing and, and unscientific. For sure. And there's so many books and so many different opinions as to the best way to train your dog. And so let's let's talk to an expert about this who is actually studying this stuff, okay? I now want to welcome Dr. Clive Wynn, researcher and animal behavior psychologist working at the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Welcome to the program, Clive. Thank you so much, Laurie. Pleasure Cl to be with you. Thank you. Clive, talk about the confusion and misconceptions about dog training, because I know you study that. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I worry that, uh, that, that there's broadening confusion in the dog training community about ultimately what's the right and the wrong thing to do. And I think that part of this has grown because the single most popular dog trainer in the country, perhaps in the world, clearly has no scientific education of any kind and has promulgated a view uh, based around a, a garbled understanding of the concept of dominance. And a lot of better educated trainers have reacted against that in a way which I fear is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Now, Clive, you're and referring is, you're referring yeah. to Caesar Malone, correct? Yes, yes, that's right. Okay. And um, and and so I personally I can't see any anything wrong with the concept of dominance. I mean, if you pick up a standard introductory textbook in animal behavior, there'll be a chapter or at least a section on the concept of dominance. Dominance is just the ability of one animal to control another animal's um, access to important resources. So if, if you're in a position where you control another individual's access to food, to shelter, uh, possibly to, to sexual partners, then you are in a relationship of dominance to that other individual. So the, so the mistake doesn't lie in talking about dominance. I think it's not an unreasonable thing to discuss in the context of our lives with dogs. The mistake lies in how that concept is interpreted. And I fear that Cesar Milan interprets the concept of dominance the way that a layperson might think of that when they're thinking of two members of opposing gangs or of the same gang facing off in some violent confrontation. I like to say that if you're the one with the opposable thumb who can open the kibble bag or can open the can of uh, wet dog food, then you are, by definition, in a position of dominance over your dog. Mm -hmm. It has no further implications. You don't gain anything by an addition to being the one who provides the food, also giving your dog a small kick or a big kick from time to time. That's just nonsensical. So I worry that, uh, that we're beginning to get only more confused about basic concepts like dominance. And, and then I also worry that people don't deeply understand the different concepts of uh, reinforcement and punishment. Punishment is anything, any, con any um, consequence that you might provide that reduces the likelihood that a behavior will be repeated. And so to some degree, you can never get away from punishment. If there are behaviors and you, and you want them to reduce in frequency, the things you do are technically punishes. So a timeout is a form of punishment. But again, that doesn't mean to say that, that there's any advantage or any purpose in beating your dog or in any other way being cruel to your animal. 
And on the flip side, you know, positive reinforcement is not without ethical uh, issues. So uh, aside from any questions about how effective different ways of training dogs are, if you're using positive reinforcement, that means you're using high-energy, high-calorie treats. And with so many animals overweight today, we need to think about the ethical consequences of positive reinforcement as well as of punishment and negative reinforcement. Clive, we received probably two or three dozen books about training every year to review. And I'm paging through them and Lori's looking at that. And that's, it's a collection of ideas almost thrown together, almost without a concept behind them. It's, it, the authors seem confused. Well, I, I must confess, I do not read training books. I, I, I sit outside of that. What I notice, so what I read is I, I keep abreast of the scientific literature. Okay. And what stuns me, I mean, I'm, I couldn't train my dog to eat her own dinner. So I, I have plenty of respect for people who actually go in and actually try and be practical and helpful for the millions of dogs and their owners that need help. And I respect that. What I see is that people like me, scientists with an interest in dog behavior, are failing the trainer community. We are the ones who should be providing leadership. The new ideas should be coming from us. So what I see when I keep abreast of the scientific literature is that we're not even contributing to the conversation. So, for example, on the on the more positive side, um, I'm a tremendous fan of Karen Pryor's. I love her books. I think she works with great sincerity. And I think the kicker training is one of the better ideas out there. First of all, you make the sound of the kicker valuable to a dog by pairing it with food. So several times you simply go click, food, kick, food, and so on, until the dog comes to recognize that the clicker sound means that food is on its way. So, my, so the question then is, what have we as behavioral scientists contributed to understanding these processes and testing whether the clicker really does work? It seems like it ought to. What do we know as to how well it does work? And the answer is, I don't think there's a single paper in the scientific literature on clicker training with dogs. I mean, it's possible I haven't been keeping up conscientiously. Maybe there are now one or two papers. But a scientific literature and a scientific consensus takes many scientists at different places working in different ways and publishing their results. That's the only way that we have scientific knowledge. And we're just not doing that. We're simply completely failing to do that. Now, Clive, you also have an interest in the welfare of dogs in shelters. We've done a lot of work looking at the welfare of dogs in shelters. We did a series of studies trying to understand what it is when people come to the shelter and they're looking for a dog, what is it that they're looking for? People in the past did studies asking people what they were looking for. Sasha and I started from the presumption that people might not really know what they're looking for. They might be influenced by things that they don't even consciously notice. And so we made thousands of video recordings of dogs reacting to visitors in shelters, and we coded every single thing that each of those dogs did, and then we looked to see which dogs got adopted and which dogs did not. And in that way, we were able to uncover patterns in the dog's behavior that influence people, even though nobody had ever mentioned this when they'd been asked what they were looking for. So, for example, one of the things that Sasha found was that if the dog licks, that is a major turnoff for the visitors. If the dog licks itself, that is unattractive to visitors. And if the dog licks any part of its kennel while a visitor is watching, that's almost like a death sentence for that dog. Oh. It is a very negative thing. Wow. Now, nobody had ever, when people had been questioned about what they were looking for, nobody ever said, I really do not want to have a dog that's going to lick itself. It just never came up. So, um, so I think that was very valuable. Uh, Sasha also developed interventions, ways of changing the dog's behavior short of employing a professional dog trainer. It's kind of, in a sense, trivial to say that if we know what we want the dogs to do, we could employ a professional to get the dogs to that place, to be doing the attractive things and not doing the unattractive things. But we started from the presumption that shelters are very short on resources, and we developed ways of improving the dog's behavior 
through methods that uh, can be employed just by volunteers that don't require professional training. The question of getting dogs out of shelters, which is ultimately the only good outcome, is to get free and home in a good home. We've also done some studies, not yet I fear entirely successful, trying to understand why people return dogs. Some shelters recognize that quite large proportions of the dogs they adopt out are getting returned to their own shelter or another shelter within a few weeks. And we've been trying to understand that, and we've been looking at interventions that might reduce the rate of returns. I'm afraid we haven't found the magic bullet for that yet, but I think it's a valuable enterprise, and we'll keep pushing away at that. We also know that shelters are very stressful for dogs. Several studies have shown that dogs in shelters are highly stressed, and we know that that produces unattractive behaviors. What we do not know, what nobody knows, is, well, what is it exactly about being in the shelter that is stressful? Because it's possible that if we knew that, we might be able to give shelters advice that might not be expensive for them to implement that would reduce the stress levels of dogs. We haven't started that yet. We don't have the resources to do that, but I would love to do that if I could find a partner who was willing to help us with the funding of that. And the final thing that I also want to develop Uh, At the moment, a lot of shelters use temperament tests. They use them to identify which dogs are safe to be adopted into homes. They don't want to be liable for allowing dogs to be adopted that end up doing harm to people in homes. And some more ambitious shelters try and identify the personality of the dog and match it to the personality of the potential adopter. Now, And and some use them to determine if a dog should be euthanized. Right, absolutely. So, so these temp- uh, these are high stakes temperament tests. This isn't like a little personality test you might do on the back pages of a magazine just for your amusement. In some cases, shelters are using temperament tests, exactly as you said, to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. What I, there are two things I would like to do. The first is I would like to develop a temperament test from the ground up. All the temperament tests that exist at present, it's not that they're foolish or misguided, but they were driven by people's intuitions about what is important and what is not important. And it ought to be possible to develop a test in a, in a kind of ideologically neutral way without having to rely on anybody's intuitions about what matters. It ought to be possible to do that. That's how psychologists work in developing new intelligence tests, new tests to identify like ADHD or any other psychological problem that a human being might have. There are well-established methods for doing that. What I would like to do is to take those methods and apply them to dogs in the shelter. Dr. Clive Wynn, animal behavior psychologist, thank you. Hey folks, it's Danny here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. Do you owe the IRS money? Do you have years of unfiled returns? Has the IRS garnished your wages or put a lien against your house? The IRS has the power to make you pay back what they claim you owe and will stop at nothing to collect. If you are losing sleep over your IRS tax problem, there is a solution. Call Signature Tax now. Speak with our professionals and feel the weight of your tax burden lifted from your shoulders. Call 800-859-9446 for your free and confidential analysis on ending your tax nightmare. We can help get your life back on track and give you the fresh start you deserve. 
Our A-plus BBB-rated tax resolution team has over 125 years of combined experience to get you the best deal possible while stopping the IRS dead in their tracks. Call Signature Tax now at 800-859-9446. Call 800-859-9446. Again, that's 800-859-9446. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. So Lori, the cloning of dogs is in the news. Did you hear about that? About this? The cloning of dogs, yes. Yes, that's becoming popular. Apparently there's a facility in South Korea. They've done 600 dogs so far. Tell me how it works. You know, that's a good question because, you know, you would think the term cloning is sort of benign and it wouldn't really be hard to do. You could maybe scrape some cells and get them to grow in a dish and somehow get a replica of your beloved pet, right? Right. That would be my first thought, that it wouldn't be so invasive, but alas, that's not the case. Not only not invasive, but costing the lives of many, many, many other dogs to get that one cloned dog, correct? Okay, so this is how that works. First of all, you need to get some eggs, and the eggs from a dog, well, you got to get a dog who's got these eggs. So it's unclear where these dogs come from that supply their eggs, but you've got to get at their ovaries, and that's done through an open surgery. So they anesthetize the dog, open up the abdomen, get the ovaries, and sort of harvest these eggs. And then where these dogs come from and where they go to is undisclosed so far. Okay, And then they utilized these eggs. They go in there with micropipette and take out the contents. So you've got like an empty, called a blank egg. And then... Uh, also, now this is done like in a little dish. Then you've got a skin cell from a animal that you want to clone, and that is placed into the egg. Okay, so then you've got your little embryo. Right. Right, and then like Frankenstein, they zap it with a little electricity to start it developing. Start it developing. Okay. And then that gets implanted into another dog. The the host mother dog. The surrogate dog. Right. Okay. Who, of course, volunteers for this and gets very highly compensated for this. And this embryo is then implanted into this surrogate. And then 61 days later, you get your puppy or puppies or nothing. Frequently, they fail. Uh, but look what happened. Look at the collateral damage. Well, besides the fact that it's about $100,000 per attempt and they frequently fail and the puppies that are produced are frequently sick and don't have normal, happy puppy and adult lives, there's no indication where either of these uh, sets of dogs are come from and where they go. So it takes many surrogate dogs and many egg donor dogs, Right. many attempts to produce one clone dog. They've done about 600 so far, and there's a big demand for it, according to the company. So what do you think about this? It's horrible. Well, it's first horrible. of all, yeah, look who wants it done. People who are grieving, they've lost a beloved pet and they want to recreate that animal. And that is sort of ridiculous. And okay, I feel bad for the people who get, get real, right? And the dog that's produced is not a duplicate of the your pet. I mean, the genes may be the same, but it doesn't equal the same exact dog. The dog's going to have his own or her own personality and then... There's a, 
you know, the life experience changes how they are, and it's just not the same. It's never the same. This dog that they're trying to replicate is costing the lives of many, many, many other dogs for this one dog, and it costs the person $100,000 to do it. I wonder who's asking, and I wonder to the people who ask what assurances they get. I would like to hear that. Do you remember Dolly the sheep? Yes. So Dolly, Dolly was the first mammal cloned from a somatic cell, right? Cloned from just a regular cell. They happened to use a mammary cell, which is, I think, why they called her Dolly, because of the mammary-Dolly Parton connection. But uh, Dolly lived almost seven years. She was, and now she's stuffed. She's taxidermied, and she was uh, from Scotland. And uh, she sort of was used to prove that that you could do this. And subsequently, many other animals um, have been cloned. And there's a growing science about this. But in the pet universe, not so good. How about the human universe? Well, that's going to be interesting also. I bet you there are many books about this already. What if uh, you could clone with no collateral damage? Just uh, get a skin cell and zap it, and uh, it grows in a little Petri dish. What do you think about just creating a clone without any other trouble? Every animal, whether human or non-human, is an individual. Although I just love my dogs and my cats that I've had in the past to pieces, I would not want to clone them. Yes. Would you? No, of course not. I'm a traditionalist. Peter, do you know if South Korea is the only area doing this? Yeah, only South Korea so far. It wouldn't surprise me if these start popping up everywhere. You know, with the money involved, it's going to happen. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused, because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, 
Report it to Animal Services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Dana Lash here. Our freedom and independence is not free. Veterans and their families pay the price for your freedom and for mine. Veterans' families are many times unprepared to deal with what our warriors bring home. The pain, the nightmares, feelings of detachment, irritability, trouble concentrating, and sleeplessness. These are some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. The Purple Heart Foundation would like to offer all of you out there, all of my listeners, the book Tears of a Warrior, a family story of combat by Janet and Anthony Seahorn as a free gift. Tears of a Warrior was written to educate families and veterans about the symptoms of PTS and to offer strategies for living with the disorder. The book is free to anyone who would like a copy. All you pay is shipping. Go to purpleheartfoundation.org. That's purpleheartfoundation.org or call 800-935-9941. That's 800-935-9941. Order the free book or give a donation in honor of a veteran you know. You can donate a car or cash. All donations go directly to help veterans nationwide. 800-935-9941 or purpleheartfoundation.org. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. As we all marvel at the amazing pictures that a tiny spacecraft has sent to us from the farthest reaches of our solar system, it's a good time to think about all the ways we've benefited from space exploration, and might still in the future. Modern conveniences like cell phone cameras, scratch-resistant lenses for sunglasses, and water purification systems were all originally developed by NASA. Because of all the brilliant minds working there, it often seems like the only limit on what we can create is our own imagination. Unfortunately, one of the barriers to innovation is entirely man-made and unique to America, legal fear. Currently, a device invented by a former NASA engineer that could save lives by making it impossible to text, talk, or email on a cell phone while driving is being kept off the market, in large part because of fears about lawsuits. Let's be fair, there are actually many products that haven't made it to market because of concerns about the excessive litigation in America, and you would be amazed at what they can do. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamerica.org. Do you hear that ringing? I've heard that ringing in my ears for over 20 years. My doctor said... The ringing and buzzing in your ears is called tinnitus, and you're just going to have to learn to live with it. The constant ringing in my ears is annoying. I've tried everything, and nothing worked. So I invested my own money, met with doctors, specialists, and certified labs. After a decade of research, we've developed Tinoxyl, a prescription-free, 100% natural and effective way to stop the ringing. And better yet, it helps me sleep. Trying to sleep with ringing in my ears is almost impossible. But with Tinoxyl, I started sleeping better in the first couple weeks. I'm so confident that Tinoxyl will help you too that I'm giving the first 100 callers a free 30-day supply. Don't let the ringing in your ears control your life. Call now and get your free 30-day supply. Just pay shipping. Take back control of your life. Combat the ringing and start sleeping again. Try it for free. Call 800-930-1669. That's adopted Cosmo from the shelter a few years ago. He was a playful but nervous, mostly black, 50-pound dog who looked to us like a pit bull mix. And that is how he was described by the shelter staff and how he was referred to on his papers. 
We had no reason to question whether that was correct or to wonder how it was decided. We just thought he would be perfect for our family, and we were right. But since then, we had learned about the pitfalls and limitations in labeling dogs based on their appearance. Just because someone at a shelter says a given dog is a pit mix or a shepherd mix doesn't make it so. And since dogs labeled as pit bulls or pit bull mixes can be subjected to discrimination, like being prohibited from apartment buildings or even banned in towns and cities, we need to be careful how these labels are applied. How do dogs of unknown lineage get assigned labels, and do the labels help or hurt efforts to increase adoptions or save the lives of dogs in shelters? I'm very pleased to welcome Victoria Voith, professor at Western University of Health Sciences and content expert for animal behavior and the human-animal bond. Welcome to the program, Victoria. Thank you. Victoria, let's go way back to the original research in the 60s by Scott and Fuller, which you refer to. What did that show? Well, Scott and Fuller did research in the 50s and 60s and 70s on behaviors of specific breeds of dogs and their crosses. So he had five purebred dogs, breeds, and crossed them and looked at how they did certain puzzles and learning things. But in the process of doing that, he was struck by the diversity of, of, of what the offspring looked like of the two purebred crosses. And so he, maybe as, a side, as an aside almost, put that information and pictures in a book. And if you look at the offspring of two purebred parents, very often they may not look much like either parent. And then once you cross those two, once you cross those offspring to other offspring that are mixed breeds, they even look less like their original uh, close ancestors. So you get very diverse appearances. It's, it's sort of like if you look at a family of people, there's a wide variety of appearances. And that's what happens when you start crossing purebred dogs a couple of times. You get all sorts of combinations. How did you get interested in the issue of visual breed identification, Victoria? Well, I've always been curious about it for many decades, particularly since I liked German Shepherds and Siberian Huskies. And when I would go through shelters and I'd see dogs that were identified as German Shepherds that didn't look at all like them, or Huskies that didn't look at all like them, I was um, uh, intrigued. And then I worked at shelters for a while and saw the diversity of opinions that were up there. So I systematically started taking pictures and trying to, uh, with the idea of uh, just seeing how often the identifications of dogs, there would be an agreement among people, an inter-observer reliability. And about the time I got that study on the way, the DNA testing came out. So I scrapped those and went for what's the actual relationship between the identification and the DNA, and then also the inter-observer reliability of the identifications and how they matched with DNA. As I began to write these papers up, I began to realize how this would affect many dogs' lives, how they were identified, particularly when it could be wrong as far as housing restrictions, whether uh, people are allowed to have their dogs in muzzles. And it, it, pit bulls are the ones that are generally um, included in this, but also German Shepherds, Rottweilers, and a variety of other breeds. So it started as a matter of curiosity, and then I began to realize that this misidentification and lack of even agreement among people in professions uh, has a, a wide set of implications. And I be- then realized that the databases we have on what, breed, what breeds are predisposed to certain behavior problems or uh, a variety of things like that are all based on people's perceptions of what those dogs were, which could have been tabulated from veterinary office records, could have been tabulated from shelters, could have been tabulated from hospital records, and we have no idea how accurate they were when they got into all these databases and research papers. In 2010, you presented your research on dog breed identification. Describe what you did and what were your findings. Most of the time, people identifying the set of dogs I had did not identify the primary breed that was in that dog if they were identifying a primary breed. And quite often, they would identify a breed that wasn't even in the DNA, at least for the first several generations. So I would say overall it was about 25 to 30 percent of the time they would at least they might identify a dog that is in, in the breed, might identify a breed that is in the dog. Yeah. So it's low. And how reliable is DNA testing to determine the breed of dog? 
I would say it's probably 90% of the time accurate, at least in identifying the dogs that are in there. But this is, of course, all proprietary information from a commercial company. How prevalent is visual breed identification among shelters and adoption agencies? Well, they generally identify the dog. Most of the time, they probably do it by visual identification. But they may also be identifying the dog as a certain breed because the person who brought it in said, I'm the owner and this is its breed. So it's hard to determine exactly how that breed of dog got attached to a particular dog. But I believe most shelters probably visually identify the dogs if there's uh, because I don't think most dogs come in with somebody telling them what breed it is. Oh, and the problem with many shelters, and this isn't just shelters, it's it's other types of forms that are required to be filled out. The people working at the shelters or these organizations are forced to put a breed down. If they say it's a mixed breed and all I want to write down is mixed breed, they're forced by the uh, employers to put down, well, if it's a mixed breed, what do you think is the most likely mixed breed it is? Yeah. And that is even in research papers where people are asked, well, what breed of dog do you think your dog is? Or what breed of dog do you think it is that fits somebody? And they'll say, well, it's a mixed breed. And they'll say, well, what do you think its predominant breed is? So people are being forced to make a guess, even if they're not that 100% sure that that's what it is. Are shelter professionals any better at identifying the genetic lineage of dogs than your average observer? Um, That's a good question. I suspect many of them are not. There may be a few that are, but that's something that I think people are starting to look at. And and it's not because they can't identify purebred dogs. It's because they look at a certain feature of a dog that they know is related to purebred dogs, and that then becomes the purebred dog. So they don't necessarily take everything into consideration, or maybe the other points that they usually look for happen to not be in that genetic mix. This bias of perception and attending to certain features has been been studied by psychologists, and they have found that even people in psychology who are well aware of this predisposition to to, uh, be prejudiced when they're assessing something still make the same amount of errors. So I suspect maybe they're not any better than the average person. Victoria, what are the harmful consequences of one, labeling of dogs, and two, miscategorizing dog breeds? Well, some of the consequences of the mislabeling and misidentification is that it can affect uh, the adoption of the pet, of the dog from the shelter, and then subsequently affect how that dog is treated by the people who adopt it. It also affects whether or not people lose their dog if they're for the, for the private legislation yeah. or private restrictions, such as you can't rent this apartment if you have a dog that looks like a pit bull or looks like a German shepherd, and the pet loses its home and the owners may lose their pet. So it can be a very sad situation all around. So... Breed-specific legislation is often aimed at pit bulls, like banning the possession or ownership or sterilization of pit bulls or pit bull mixes in a given area. And yet, it seems we cannot even decide whether a given dog is indeed a pit bull. So what's the solution? Well, there there are several problems with the legislation, and, and one is that we don't know exactly what a pit bull is. It's a, com- it's a term used for... a particular phenotype, which has a certain look that people assume are pit bulls. And there are multiple registrations that have the words pit bulls in them for purebreds. And it's a whole mess as to exactly what is considered a pit bull. Uh, I think the breed-specific legislation was initiated because people wanted to increase the safety of, of individuals and other animals in an area. And this was based on data that was published in reputable journals that was um, overblown in its its validity as far as the database was of the dogs. This was based on on information in the literature that seemed to indicate that pit bulls, German shepherds, rottweilers were more aggressive than other breeds, which we now know is probably the data they had to decide this. The information they used to decide this was probably inaccurate. So you're saying more research is really needed. Yes, more research is really needed on this whole thing. And some of the new information that's coming out indicates, or reports anyway, that in areas where they have banned specific breeds, bites have not gone down. 
and that the cost that goes into trying to initiate these breed-specific bans is economically quite steep. And maybe we would be better off just trying to manage and legislate well-behaved dogs or look for particularly dangerous individuals. Looking at the individual dog and management by the owner as opposed to specifically zeroing in on specific breeds. Dr. Victoria Voith, thank you for your expertise. Every day in the United States, 70,000 puppies and kittens are born. Unfortunately, there are not enough homes for all these cats and dogs. As a result, they end up being neglected, abandoned, or euthanized in shelters. In fact, millions of healthy, loving, and adoptable pets are killed in our shelters every year. On average, more than half of animals that enter shelters get euthanized. However, there is good news and two powerful ways you can help this problem. First, make sure to have your dogs and cats fixed even before they have one litter. That is a good way to reduce overpopulation. And second, when you want a new pet, make sure to adopt him from a shelter instead of buying him from a pet store or a breeder. When you adopt, you really save a life, and that makes everybody very happy. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas, to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals, to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Danny here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. For millions of baseball fans who attend big league games each year, the possibility of catching a foul ball is one of the attractions of the game. According to one study, as many as 53,000 foul balls are caught by happy fans each year. However, if lawyers who just filed a class action lawsuit against Major League Baseball have their way, a lot fewer fans will be leaving games with a souvenir ball. Under the lawsuit, all ballparks, including the historic Wrigley Field in Chicago and Fenway Park in Boston, would be required to extend protective netting from behind home plate all the way to the foul poles in left and right field. The lawyers argue that warnings about foul balls printed on tickets, posted around the ballparks, and mentioned over the PA system are not enough. Let's be fair, serious injuries do happen, and baseballs have been flying into the stands for decades, even before Babe Ruth was playing. But do we really want a policy like this that affects millions of baseball fans to be decided by one lawsuit? Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamerica.org. Not available in California, Louisiana, and Virginia.
Listeners, do you have startup capital and want to invest in a booming business with incredible profit and growth potential? The opportunity is now because Fresh Healthy Vending, the number one healthy vending franchise in North America, is looking for a few business-savvy, healthy-minded people right here in the local area to become Fresh Healthy Vending franchise owners. We're growing so fast that we've had hundreds of new franchise owners in the last few years alone. Now you can join them. This area has a huge demand for Fresh Healthy organic snacks on the go, and that's exactly what you'll be selling with your Fresh Healthy Vending machine. We've already identified prime high-traffic locations that are perfect for healthy vending machines. Now we just need the right people to join our franchise network and help Fresh Healthy Vending continue to boom. If this sounds like you, go to readyforfresh.com today and enter code 1414. We'll send you a free owner information kit. As an added bonus to new franchise owners, we'll also pay half the franchise fees. Hurry, this offer is limited. Just go to readyforfresh.com and enter code 1414. That's readyforfresh.com, code 1414. Welcome back to the show. You know, we used to have a bug guy come by the house each month to spray the perimeter of the house because we're getting a lot of ants inside. And we always wondered whether this was safe for the dogs and when we could let them go out again. And what if they stepped in the sprayed area? Would they then lick their paws and get sick? You know, I'm still not really sure what risks pesticides and weed killers pose to dogs and cats. But I know who does. Robert Reed, Medical Director, VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Dr. Reed, I have so many questions about this. Let's start with insecticides, especially the ones professionally sprayed. What are they and what precautions do I need to take with my companion animals around the house? Well, first off, you know, I could give you some suggestions of things to do to protect your household and your pets in your household. Um, but I think it's important anytime you ask someone to apply a pesticide around your home to know what they're going to use. There are so many different agents out there that are used for pesticides as pesticides, um, and they have different levels of risk. And the exposure risk is different, and the way the cats or dogs might respond to them is different. So I think it's realistic to to expect that you know what agents are being used and and what level of safety they have. And those questions about how long can your cat or dog be exposed to them, how long are they going to be in the environment, where are they going to go in the environment, yeah. um, is the residue that's left behind going to be toxic? Those are all legitimate questions. Um, that you should ask, and you should think about what your goal is for pesticide treatment, so that if you're treating for ants, you you just treat for ants. If you're just treating your trees, you just treat your trees. You know, you limit the exposure to the environment and to the and limit the areas that your pet can come into contact with it. Specifically, if you know if you're having someone come over to your house uh, to to treat the area for pet for pests, then you, you of course want to remove the pets from the area. All of their toys, beds, I mean, chew bones, food bowls, all of those should be removed. Um, always remember to cover any, cover any aquaria that fish might be in so that any vapors or residues don't end up in the water there. Um, I would make sure uh, that, you, uh, that you know how long they have to be off of the area. Obviously, as you, as you mentioned, you want to keep the uh, pets away from any areas until it's completely dried. Um, but you also want to know how long, even after that, you might be able, they might be able to have contact. You know, treating a lawn, for instance, with a herbicide or with a pesticide may have uh, a longer duration of risk than treating the tile in your kitchen, for instance, because of the different products that are used, different rates of degradation. You know, if you know what product is being used, you can know whether sunlight or whether water has an effect on the degradation. So you, you should ask those, and I think you're, you should expect your, your pest control provider to be able to provide that information. Yeah, um, do, go ahead. There's another thing that I think you want to keep track of. If you're applying a spray, then you have one potential impact. But if you're using a pesticide that's provided in a bait or something that the pest is intended to eat, then the level of risk to your pets is completely different. And in fact, toxicities are probably much more likely in cases where you know where herbicides are more likely insecticides 
or rodenticides or snail baits are provided in forms that animals eat, meaning that your dog or cat might be tempted to eat them as well. Now, do dogs and cats like to lick these products, or is it just incidental contact that's really the concern here? I think that, again, depends on which agent you're using, and it depends on where it's being applied. Uh, I think that there aren't very many dogs or cats that would lick a surface after it's been sprayed, but there are a few, and you need to know your dog and need to make sure that if they're intended to do that, they don't, just because that's an an increase in exposure that you can avoid. Um, But once it's dried, the the chance of the residue impacting them, in other words, getting on their feet and and licking them and affecting them to a level that's toxic is extremely small. Uh, I think that when it's wet, there's a greater chance of absorption of the toxin, which may have a higher likelihood of reaching a level of toxicity. But once it's applied and dried, there's very little risk of exposure, with the exception of, of anything that's applied to the lawn that may have a long degradation process where pets may be rolling around in the grass and having extended exposures over a long period of time that might increase their level of risk. And what are the signs of toxicity? Depends on the toxin involved. You know, if you're talking about an organophosphate, which is more likely something that's used as a spray or a pyrethrin, it, it could be neurologic. It could be gastrointestinal, meaning, you know, drooling or vomiting or diarrhea. It depends largely on what's being used, and that's another good reason um, to ask what's being used so you know what to expect. But some of these toxins that are used as rotenticides actually cause internal bleeding. Some of them cause swelling in the brain. And this is of both the intended victim and an unintended victim, like a dog or a cat. Uh, and uh, the, the most common side effect of something like snail bait is probably seizures. Wow. And what's the treatment for toxicity? It depends, again, on what you're using. Um, it's really important if your pet is exposed to a toxin that you know what it is because we have available um, experts through the uh, Animal Poison Control Center that can help us come up with the best way to treat uh, any exposure if we know what it is. So if there's any way that you can provide a veterinarian or poison control specialist with the exact compound, it will go a long way to helping in the success of the treatment. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. So obviously, if one suspects their pet has ingested or becomes ill from pesticides, call your veterinarian right away. There is a National Pesticide Information Center, which Dr. Reed was telling me about, that people can call if they have questions related to pesticide use around their home and around their pets. That number is 800-858-7378. 800-858-7378. That's the National Pesticide Information Center. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website, again, is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org.